this morning, if you're taking notes, um, the, I'm titling the message this morning, Built Different. Built Different. Yeah, something Pastor Jeff said a couple of weeks ago really hit me in a different kind of way. He said, you are leaving a legacy one way or the other. So whether you're intentionally leaving a legacy or unintentionally leaving one, you are, in fact, leaving a legacy. You know, this is crazy. Current scientific estimates are that some 95% of brain activity is unconscious. Do you know that? That effectively what the studies are saying now is that approximately 95% of the things that you do are done by routine. Like most of us, when we, when, we, when, we, when we go to bed at night, all the routines that we've created, we don't have to recreate them. We just know that before we're able to go to bed, we have to brush our teeth. We have to, you know, for some of you, it's, you know, we, we, we say our prayers, we put our kids to bed in a particular kind of way. Like I feel like at this point, as a parent, I could be dead asleep and still put my kids to bed the same way that I always do. 95%. This includes habits and patterns, automatic body functions, creativity, emotions, personality, beliefs and values, cognitive biases, and long-term memory. This means that the vast amount of what you and I are doing on a regular basis is behavior that we have learned either intentionally or unintentionally through repetition. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we building with intention and by design or unconsciously and by default? Are we building, are we building by intention and design or unconsciously and by default? In the, uh, in the mid 19th century, there was a a particular archaeology uh, discovery in ancient Egypt. And it was the, it was the headpiece of what would, had been a massive, massive uh, temple complex. And on this stone, a particular king wrote a very arrogant, uh, arrogant phrase that a, a woman named Mary Shelley turned into a sonnet. And here's, here's an excerpt. This is, uh, this is from a, a sonnet called Ozymandias. It says, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. The point of this sonnet is two things. Number one, everyone wants to be remembered. Number two, what we build in the natural is fleeting. You know, when I, was, when I was young in ministry, the big, the big buzzword when I, was, when I was first in ministry was relevant. Like we just, you know, we, the church, we want to be relevant. Youth pastors all wanted to be relevant in the way that they dressed, in their haircuts, in, you know, in, the, in, the, in the way that they crafted a message, in, you know, in, how they, you know, in how they carried themselves, because what was really going to make the difference was us being able to speak to culture where culture was at. And so relevant was at, the, was at the core of like every conversation, right? What I wanted the most was I wanted to be able to, I wanted to communicate better. Like all my heroes back then were guys who could say, quote, quote unquote, say it differently. 
It's like if, if, I could, if I could listen to a person and they could, they could turn a phrase in a new or fresh kind of way, I was like, man, i got to listen to more of this guy because he's quote-unquote got it. You know, the older I'm getting, I, I, by the way, I turned 40 this year, so I feel like I can effectively now say the older I'm getting, and people in the room aren't like, okay, whippersnapper. <laughs> Okay. I'm actually getting old. I was, I was talking with my brother who is currently 40. <laughs> anyway, uh, talking to my brother and I, you know, I said, dude, do you realize we're like middle-aged now? And he's like, yeah, man, do you feel any different? I'm like, well, my joints hurt. So I guess, <laughs> but the older in ministry that I'm getting and the more that I've seen can I be honest with you? I'm, I'm less and less worried about being relevant. And, and I'm more and more convinced that the way of success is the way of faithfulness. And of course, as a leader, I want to be able to effectively communicate God's word. But I tell you, what moves me these days isn't necessarily a sermon well preached, but rather a life well lived. You know, it's interesting. One of... One of my, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite passages of Scripture of all time is Hebrews chapter 11, right? Like, not only is it just an amazingly, like, well-written piece of literature, but it, it, it has so much depth and character, and in some ways, Hebrews 11 encapsulates almost the entirety of the Old Testament. The interesting thing about it is that every single person that is mentioned within Hebrews chapter 11, this, these heroes of faith, very few of them ever preached a message. Very few of them ever stood on a platform. The vast majority of them simply were obedient to God, and it was credited to them as righteousness. Listen to this. I'm not going to go through the entire, uh, the entire grip of scriptures here, but we are gonna, we're going to go about eight scriptures. It says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this our ancestors were approved. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man, because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith... The walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. And what more can I say? This is, this is me skipping way ahead. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead raised to life again. Other people were tortured not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world 
was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground, and all of these were approved through their faith. But they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Part of what I love about this last grip of scriptures from 30 to 39 is it describes two different experiences that we see in the Bible. We see a group of people that we love to cheer at because they're winning. You know, it's, it's the people who became mighty in battle and like, we're like, yes, I too will become mighty in battle. We see the people who escaped the edge of the sword. We think about all the times that God rescued and God saved. And then there's the flip side of this, where it's the people who didn't escape the edge of the sword and they were tortured and they were sawn in two. They were thrown into, they were, they were, they were thrown into deep distress and they were afflicted. But both of those were approved. Can I tell you, when you're walking with God, if you're walking in obedience, you can be blessed in strength and you can also be blessed in affliction. See, there are some that believe that if we're walking in affliction, that that means that we're walking out of the favor of God. Friend, I got to tell you, there is a lot more about the suffering of the saints than the glorification of the saints in this life. Now, when I, when I said the name of Ozymandias, maybe 10 or 20 of you have ever even heard of that name before. I'll give you, I'll give you his actual, uh, his non-Greek name. His name is actually Ramesses II. Now, some of us, again, probably know a little bit about Ramesses II. He was a, uh, he was a fairly well-known Egyptian king. But what's really interesting, and I want you to let this sink in, I guarantee you that even though there are some of you in this room that know something about Ramesses II, you know significantly more about Rahab than Ramses. Let this sink in. Ramesses spent his whole life crafting a legacy so that at the end of it, he could make a statue to himself in which he inscribes upon a stone, look at me. Top this if you can. And finally, when it's discovered by archaeologists in the 19th century, all that's left is the ruin of his own words. Rahab, on the other hand, spent most of her life as the lowest of the low, but one yes to God catapulted her into a stratosphere of honor that many kings and emperors could only dream of. Because she was obedient to God, God not only saved her, but he also placed her in the line of the Messiah. If you actually read in the book of Matthew, there are two women that, stand, that, 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 are, that are put into the line of Jesus. Both of them acted as prostitutes. One of them was Rahab. But again, I want you to consider this. Here's the big idea this morning. Obedience to God is significantly more noteworthy than indulgence of self. Obedience to God is significantly more noteworthy than indulgence to self. The difference between Ramses and Rahab was that Ramses created a witness to his own glory. Rahab created a witness to God's glory. And because what you give to yourself doesn't produce an eternal reward, but what you give to God always does. 
you know, presumably, yeah, I just mentioned that I'm turning 40. Presumably, I've got a lot of years left before Jesus calls me home. But I got to be honest with you, I've, I've had over the past probably a couple of years, I've had a number of, of, of people that I've admired from afar that have gone on to be with the Lord. And it's amazing, you know, even just, even just from a Facebook platform, seeing the comment sections when faithful men and faithful women go home to be with the Lord, the things that people write about them. And I've been considering that for myself. You know, some, most, some of you that um, have been on social media know that Pastor Tim Keller passed away just a couple of days ago. And it's amazing the kinds of stories that people have of how Pastor Tim either personally affected and touched their life or, you know, by, you know, by just his teachings and, you know, and, and the faithfulness that he walked in. And it's, it's something that I've, I've thought about recently for myself. It's caused me to wonder how I'll be remembered at the end. See, by contrast, Rahab, because she came out of her lifestyle and trusted God, I want you to understand this, is remembered more for her obedience than her disobedience. Now, we know Rahab as Rahab the prostitute, but only because that's what the Bible says. Ultimately, what we know about Rahab and what's remembered about her is that she was obedient to God, and the Lord saved her and rescued her, and her whole life changed after that. Again, by contrast, we think of Solomon, the wisest man ever. He's actually remembered more for his stark lack of wisdom at the end of his life than he is for anything that he did before that. I was talking to, uh, talked to my friend Caleb the other day. Um, by the way, if you, if you want to like rap with a guy for like two hours about everything in life, you got you to gotta hang out with Caleb Gilbert. This guy is like, he has like an incredible level of knowledge. I don't know why we landed on this, but we were talking about commercial real estate. And he was saying to me, he said, yeah, we, we're building a storage unit. One of the things, can I, can I be... I have a bone to pick with storage units. All right. Here's my bone to pick with storage units. Small town life is really interesting in the fact that whenever some, like, a piece of land gets cleared, you're like, here we go. This is it. It's going to be a hotel, or it's going to be a new restaurant, or it's going to be like, it's going to be something really exciting, right? And like for a while, because the land is just, you know, it's just kind of being zhushed, or whatever they do, you like you you start entertaining these things in your mind, and wild rumors start spreading on Facebook about it's gonna be a Taco Bell. <laughs> you know, it's not gonna be a Taco Bell, guys, because in three months, you know what happens? It's a storage unit. <laughs> and the thing was, I never understood why until I talked to Caleb. He said, he said, yeah, commercial real estate is like is a, it's a really like iffy investment. He said, but the reason why storage units, you tend to see so many of them pop up, is that only 8% of them fail nationwide. 8%. I Googled, so Google is not like the end-all, be-all of information. But I Googled what the average, like the average profit of a storage unit is per year. The low end was $350,000. The high end was $800,000. And I'm over here like, I need to buy a storage unit. <laughs> Y'all got any of those storage units available? 
Now, okay, there are, I just, I feel like, can I stay on storage units for a minute? I feel like storage units, they're, they're like this particularly American thing. They're like buffets. You know what I'm talking about? Like buffet, there's like very few buffets around the world because like nobody wants to gorge themselves quite like Americans do. But something about storage units, there are a lot of good reasons to have storage units, and then there are some bad reasons to have storage units. I remember when I was in, when I was in youth ministry still, there was a family in our church who, uh, who asked our youth to come and help clear out um, their uh, deceased mother's storage unit. They were kind of getting older, and, and, and they kind of told us, hey, if there's anything in there of value, you guys can keep it, sell it, you know, do whatever you want to. Man, we... we we spent the better part of seven or eight hours clearing out this storage unit. By the end of it, the family took about 90% of it to the dump. The other 10%, they, you know, the, the, the rest of the stuff they had, they just kept because it was kind of sentimental, but ultimately it had no value. This storage unit had been in that family for more than 20 years. They'd been paying to store stuff that they would eventually just throw away. My point is not anti-storage units, by the way, for those of you who own storage units in here and you're just like, this guy better move on quick. (laughs) (laughs) But rather to have this thought a little more clearly in our heads, we tend to be very intentional about our earthly possessions and wealth, which, by the way, is generally a good thing. But we can tend to be very unintentional about storing up riches in heaven. Let me put it this way. It is important what you pass on to your kids. Like, it's important the legacy that you leave here. But how many of you realize that your life is a vapor? Like, that's how the Bible describes it. Your life is a vapor. It's like this. In the grand scheme of eternity, 80 years is going to seem like a very, very short period of time. In fact, how many of you in this room that are, let's say, over the age of 50, recognize that the older you get, the faster time goes? You know, I started noticing that at about 30. I was like, boy, Christmas really came and went fast this year, guys. What's happening? And every year that I've gotten older, every year goes a bit faster. Can I tell, tell you what you cannot take with you to heaven? Your boat, your 401k, your house. Are these things bad to go after? No. It's just that, to be quite honest with you, a lot of us only go after that. And the things that we do that actually might be storing up riches in heaven for us, we kind of just happen upon things. We don't plan for it. We just, we're available if it happens. How would your retirement look if you just put money into it whenever you remembered it? I just want to give you a couple thoughts on faithfulness. Number one, be consistent, man. Be consistent. Galatians 6, 7 and 9 says this, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit 
will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. How many of you know that nothing worth doing is easy? Something is really deeply rooted in me from my childhood. It's bathrobes. I know it sounds, it sounds weird, but bathrobes. Every morning, you know, I would wake up for school you know, at inconsistent times. Sometimes at, you know, the yell of my mother, other times at my actual alarm. But without fail, no matter what time I would go out, even if I woke up on, like at the correct time, which I believe was 6 a.m., I would go out and I would see my dad on the couch in pajamas with a bathrobe with a hood on and he would be praying, reading his Bible and meditating every morning, every morning without fail. I, I remember even thinking to myself, you know, cause as a, you know, as a child, I, I remember thinking to myself, what more does this guy have to pray about? Like, jeez, man, he's waking up. Like, my dad would wake up faithfully every morning at 5 a.m. and spend two hours in the presence of God. Now, this isn't to gas up my dad. Like, this is just, this is what he did. But I remember every single morning, and, and even when uh, we played, we used to play, uh, when I was in junior high, we used to play what we called old man basketball, which is like all these older guys would get up at, on Tuesday, like Tuesdays and Thursdays at like 6 o'clock in the morning, play basketball for about an hour and a half, and then like go back home. On those days, instead of waking up, waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning, my dad would wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning because the priority that he had created in his life was, I am a man of the presence of God, I'm a man of the Word of God, and I need to be in that Word no matter what else is going on in my life. There were some unintended consequences. When I was a kid, and before I really had an encounter with Christ, I didn't really understand why he was doing all this. But when I actually began to encounter Jesus, guess what I started doing? I started waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I'd get out that Bible that my dad bought me. I would journal. I'd read the Bible and I'd journal in a bathrobe. Because listen, listen, that's what I saw the man of God in my life do. The truth is, every family has a culture. It's sometimes why when you, like, when you go and you hang out at somebody's house for the first time, you, you, have, you share a meal with them, like, you kind of get a weird feeling about them. You're like, I don't know about these guys, man. You know, most of the time, I can just, just be really honest with you, like some of us in the room get really spiritual about stuff like that, and we're like, well, my discernment's going way off right now. Actually, they probably just have a different life culture than you do. Some of that culture is due to teaching and correction, but I got to tell you that most culture is caught, not taught. Most culture is caught, not taught. So if you find that your children are really quarrelsome and how you parent them is in a quarrelsome fashion, 
Can I tell you where some of that quarrelsomeness came from? I found that out in my own parenting, if I can be honest with you. I found my kids, um, as they've gotten older, kind of argue with each other in the back of the car a lot. And I remember sitting down and, and praying about it, like, Lord, what do I do about this? And he said, well, how often do you raise your voice at your kids? And I said, I don't know if I want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> See, I had found that some of my parenting style was coming from annoyance. But can I tell you that what I was reaping in the back of the car is what I had been sowing in the house. Boy, I got convicted again just saying that. <laughs> By nature, we imitate what we see and we reproduce what we're seeing. You know, it's an interesting principle. If you, you go back into the book of Genesis and the story of Jacob and his uncle Laban, who Jacob was a deceptive man, but he kind of met his match in the deceitfulness of his uncle. And his uncle, after squeezing 14 years of work out of Jacob so that he could marry one daughter that he wanted and another daughter that he didn't want, Laban's next profit margin, like, Ponzi scheme, like mid-level marketing thing, was he told, he, he told Jacob, he said, okay, do all the things you've been doing for me, and I'll give you the spotted lambs, the speckled lambs, and the black sheep of the herds. And so what Jacob did to increase his profit margin was that he went to the watering holes and the places where all of these sheep mated, and he started taking bark that was spotted and speckled and mottled in black and showed it to the sheep while they were mating. Guess what kind of sheep came out? Spottled, speckled, and black. We reproduce what we see. From a positive standpoint, if you're not seeing the results you're looking for yet, keep going. Number two, be intentional. Be intentional. This goes for habit creation as much as habit destruction. You remember how I said that as much as 95% of what we do is unconscious. How you change habits and behaviors is to focus on them, not to ignore them. How many of you recognize that problems don't go away by you ignoring them? For example, the other day, um, my, uh, my wife came home from work and, and she said, hey, hon, the car is smoking? And I was like, ah, oh, geez. Well, it's probably nothing. <laughs> probably nothing. And, uh, and so I literally, I turned the car, like I got in the van, drove up to the church. By the time I got to the church, um, it looked like my vehicle was on fire. Like there was literally, it was trailing smoke almost all the way down 41. And so I pull into the parking lot and this thing is just like Mount Vesuvius, just like, shh. You know, I'm like, um, this is probably bad. <laughs> so what I could have done is I could have just kept driving it. Cause I mean, to be honest with you, like 
car repairs can be really, really expensive. And initially, what we could have done is we could have just ran it until it blew up. Which is how some of us, to be quite honest with you, are living our lives. We're running, on, we're, we're, we're basically, we're trailing smoke and thinking to ourselves, it's okay, God will deliver me. Let me tell you how God's going to deliver you. You're going to break down and then it's going to have to get fixed. But maybe instead of doing that, you just pull off the side of the road, call a mechanic and see what we can do here. You know what's awesome is that we had a, a guy in our church who, uh, his, his wife reached out to us and, and I mean, in my mind, I was catastrophizing. I even, I even Googled it. I was like, oh geez, Google knows how much this is going to be. And like the top end of what like my vehicle would be if it was a radiator was looking like $1,800. And I'm like, man, I just, we just had an issue a couple of, like couple of months ago that cost us $2,000. I don't know if I'm like ready for another $2,000 investment in this vehicle. And this particular guy hits me up and says, hey man, I'll do it for you for free. Just pay for the parts. It cost me 300 bucks. The moral of the story is this. Sometimes what we think is, is going on in our lives is going to be the most difficult and expensive process, and sometimes it's just a matter of getting it out there. Sometimes it's just a matter of actually saying something. You're like, hey, I really need some help. I'm kind of blowing smoke here. You know, for some... Focusing on habits and behaviors is learning to rest. For others, it's learning to work. But when it comes to looking and acting like Jesus, how do we practice it intentional, uh, with intentionality? Let's go to Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. It says, And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now I'm going I'm to also parallel this in Matthew 22. Said, he said to them, the Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. So here's a good question to consider. Because when we look at these two different passages, they're, they're actually talking about two different things. So when Jesus, when Jesus is talking about judgment in, in, in Matthew 25, when he's saying... The, if you did any of these things for the least of these, my brothers, he's talking about, you know, if you gave them food, water, you visited them when they were in prison, he's not talking about just any old person. By saying these brothers of mine, what he's actually saying is believers. Like, how are you planning to bless the believers in your life? The second, when he's talking about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself, this is where Jesus is talking about loving the people around you regardless of whether or not they're saved. So here's, here's a practical question for you if we're trying to figure out how do we look and act more like Jesus? How are you planning to bless those of the house of faith? And how are you planning to bless your neighbors? Does that make sense? See, sometimes what we're doing is that we will do good works if there happens to be a need. If we, if we specifically see something that, that there is a need, we will, we'll be like, oh, it seems like somebody might need help there. But when was the last time that you actually planned to bless somebody that was outside of your house? 
Number three, make the pursuit of God your priority. We have the worship team come back. I want to hit this one more time. Matthew 22, 37 and 38. He said to him, love the Lord your God. I want to, I want to specifically hit these, okay? With all your heart. With all of it. With all your soul. And with all of your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Can I ask you a question? Is this the kind of love and surrender that you have for Jesus? You know, it's interesting. There are 613 laws in the Mosaic law. And everything in the law. And this is where, you know, we, we go to this, the, the next passage of scripture where Jesus says, and a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. For in this, all of the law and prophets hang. And what he's saying is, if you got the first two commandments right, if you got the first two right, the other 613 wouldn't be necessary. Everything in the law and prophets hangs on those two. And yet, if you think about even the judgments and the pronouncements in the prophets, all of these things were necessary because number one didn't actually sink in. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. See, too often, what we see is people giving lip service to God. They give Him just enough to expect His blessing. They give Him just enough of themselves that they can then blame Him for every perceived letdown or turn of events that doesn't go their way. You know, as I'm, as I'm coming in for a landing here, can I maybe present to you an opinion? Uh, this, is, this, is, this is just an opinion. You know, going back to the story of Cain and Abel, you know, where in, in, in Hebrews 11 it says that, that Abel offered a better sacrifice. And even though he's dead, his blood still speaks. What's interesting about Scripture in, in, in Genesis, when it says that Cain and Abel are bringing their sacrifice... It doesn't quantify, it doesn't actually quantify that there was anywhere previously where someone had told Cain, vegetables won't do it. Like in some ways, I've heard it, I've heard it taught a number of different ways, and, it, and there's probably some truth to it, to be quite honest with you, but sometimes what we, what we hear taught is that the reason why Cain and, his, and his, his offering were rejected is because he brought vegetables out of the cursed ground, whereas Abel offered a sacrifice of blood, which was what God was asking for. Interestingly enough, even in the Mosaic law, there are all kinds of different offerings that don't have to be of blood. There's, 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 there's the grain offerings, there's wine offerings, there's all sorts of stuff that actually Cain, it's not like he gave an offering that he was specifically told not to bring. So if he wasn't specifically told not to bring it, what was the problem with it? Here's where my opinion comes in. Maybe his gift was to appease God and not to please him. I mean, if you think about it this way, Eve and Adam did one thing wrong 
and they saw the downfall of all creation. It's possible that Cain maybe just thought God was dangerous and if I can just appease him, he'll bless me. Man, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for people to offer gifts to the gods to appease them. But I got to tell you, God doesn't want your appeasement gift. He wants your heart. He doesn't want the little slice that you think is going to like be just enough for him. Friend, Jesus is either any, if, if Jesus is anything, he's everything. If he is who he said he is, and you're bought with a price like the Bible says you are, then he's worthy of everything you've got, not just a portion of what you've got. doesn't want your leftover life. He wants the whole thing. And here's the thing, man. When he gets your heart, you get everything else. Some of the things that, that we, are, we are striving for and searching for the most are actually found in ease in Christ. We're, we're, searching, for, we're searching for permanence. We're searching for peace. We're, we're searching for all the things that we are already offered through a relationship with Christ. You know, Solomon, even though he became evil in his latter days, one thing that he did well was that he asked God for the right thing at the right time. And when he did, he received all the other things that kings in his days were asking for. You know, God comes to him and he says, because of your father, David, because you've been given a legacy, you've been given a heritage in the Lord, I will give you one thing, anything you want. And Solomon says, wisdom. For who can lead this great people of yours? And God then says to him, because you haven't asked for riches, because you haven't asked for a long life, because you didn't ask for the death of your enemies, I'm going to give you everything that you didn't ask for because you asked for the right thing. Friend, can I, can I tell you sometimes, sometimes a prayer and God answering it is about asking for the right thing, not just for what we think is the right thing. Listen, a legacy in the spirit is built differently than one in the natural. It might have similar elements of character, but it ultimately doesn't happen without this simple reality. Wholehearted, full-throated devotion to Christ. When I say full-throated, can I tell you, there are things in scripture that are absolutely wild that nobody bats an eye at. They just obey. There's a story in 2 Kings of the prophet Elisha and he, he, he happens upon a certain widow who comes to him and says we, my son and I basically have one more meal left we have enough flour and oil for one more meal and then after that we're either going to die of starvation or we'll be sold into slavery and she was asking for his help here's what Elisha says to her okay go ahead and bake that meal up for me And then, the Lord, I want you to gather all the vessels you can. And with whatever oil you have left, as long as there's a vessel, the oil will not run out. I want, to, I want you to think about the practical realities of this for a moment. Elisha just came into a woman's house that was in absolute poverty. And he said, in essence, if you'll give to the Lord, the Lord will solve your problem. 
And it's funny, you know, I, I'm sure the widow felt some kind of way about it, but you know what she didn't do? She didn't say, whoa, hang on, man. You just came into my house and asked for my last food. I just told you we're starving to death. She says, oh, let me just whip something up for you. Because she believed God more than she believed her circumstance. Listen, so many of us, we are being led by our circumstances and our fear, not by our obedience and our faith. Listen to this. This is, this is where I'm closing up. Philippians 3, 7 to 11 says, But whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and also so and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul was actually embracing suffering, not running from it. He was saying, Jesus was the man of suffering. How am I supposed to know him if I've never suffered? How do I know what he feels like if I've never felt that way? I embrace the things that I see Jesus embrace. Listen, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you to give your everything to Christ. Even the areas of your suffering. Even the areas of your question marks. The areas that you think to yourself, why am I not healed yet? Why doesn't this seem to be working? Why, why, why hasn't this situation, like, why hasn't this, why hasn't it been fixed yet? Can I encourage you this morning? Life doesn't have to be perfect for God to be good. I'm going I'm to say it again because I feel like it, it, it's worth saying. Sometimes American Christians, we have this, this perspective because we think that we can fix everything in the world. That if everybody just did things our way... That like, when we think about faith, we consider to ourselves, well, if God is so powerful, then why are things not quite right in my life? Friend, I gotta tell you, your life doesn't have to be perfect for God to be good. In fact, some of the things, some of the very things that we look at in our lives and we, and we question God about are the things that are shaping actual character within us. Can I tell you what produces resilience? Suffering. That's actually what James tells us in James chapter 1. He says, he, he, he says specifically, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because it produces a proven character in you. People who don't suffer complain a lot about some of the dumbest things. I mean, like, I've said this a number of times, but we are a, we are a microwave people who serve a crockpot God. We want things to happen so quick, so fast, in my timing. Man, God waited 2,000, 4,000 years of human history before sending Jesus. You don't think there were people that were like, hey God, it's getting a little dark around here. 4,000 years. But can I tell you what it produced? in the people that were waiting for him. 
faithfulness, character, obedience. Man, I don't know why I'm saying going so hard at suffering this morning, but can I can I encourage you to make the place of your suffering the place of your greatest joy and obedience? Not because it's easy, but because it's hard. But because you are being conformed through suffering into the image of Christ. Jesus, in the, in, the, in the book of Isaiah, the prophetic word about him was, he was a man of sorrows. He was a man of sorrows, a son of suffering. We just thought, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's like, he says, we, we looked at him, we thought maybe he was cursed by God. But actually, actually what he was doing was he was taking our iniquity He was bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity, and it's by his stripes we're healed. Listen, one one last time. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Listen, you won't always suffer. But like James, I feel this admonition in the spirit this morning. When you do, count it all joy. Because there's a character being produced in your life that can't be produced in victory. Let me say it this way. There There is a praise in your pain that you cannot give God on the other side. There is a praise that you can offer him today that you will not be able to offer him when you are well and whole and healed and living forever in his presence. That is a gift that you can only give him today. And I want to encourage you, make that place of questioning the place of obedience. Make that place of disaster into a place of faith. See, that's what Paul did when he said three times, Three times I asked God to remove this thorn from my flesh, and yet he told me, my grace is sufficient for you. And it's in your weakness that my strength is perfect.